The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range, Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie I need your help here, um, so listen up. I got a mail this morning from uh, Ishka, and it's my water charges, and they want me to pay 64 bucks approximately on the 1st of June. Now, when you hear uh, they're trying to suspend water charges next week uh, in Dolairn, um they're going to abandon water charges. Um, there's no certainty we're going to get our money back. What should I do? Should I be a good citizen, believe in what I've always believed in? And as Barry Kenny here on the program said one day, I just feel I'm I'm uh, uh, responsible as a citizen. What should I do? I must say when I opened it this morning, I just said to myself, they've got an awful cheek. It's no longer a question of being able to pay now. It's a question that increasingly fewer and fewer of us are actually paying the bills in this country. And I'm struggling. So your help to 53106 cost 30 cents. Um, now, Brendan Howland, the new leader of the Labour Party, he was on the Pat Kenny show and described the current government as intrinsically unstable. Let's analyse that statement for a moment. Uh, the independent one, of the independent TDs who supported the government is Michael Doctor Michael Harty from Clare. Uh, so he's going to pull his support now. It was suggested it was because he didn't get a junior ministry. He's now saying, "Oh well, I'm going to look at it uh, on a case by case basis." Has this guy any sense of responsibility? We have a government because guys like him agreed to support it. Now he's turning around and saying, uh, well, maybe. What about what about villages in Ireland now without GPs that he, he, he went on about in his emails? People voted for him because they thought he cared about villages and GPs in Irish uh, rural life. Now... You know, sorry, it's about me, me, me. Uh, and uh, he's the government becomes more instead because we lose one. And then, you are, I know you won't believe this, but it is actually true. John Halligan, Minister John Halligan, a week in office, says... He is likely to support an opposition motion which calls for water charges to be scrapped immediately. Simon Coveney was talking to Jonathan Healy at News Talk lunchtime. This is what he had to say about it. They're independents for a reason, uh, uh, because they're strong personalities and they're independent in terms of how they think. Um, and, um, you know, but, but we as a government have to be coherent as well. So, you know, um, I'll, I'll certainly... Um, speak to John Halligan later on and hopefully be able to give him the, uh, the reassurance he needs on an issue which I know is very delicate for him in Waterford uh, around water. Like, apparently now he's changed his mind. I tell you, I am just... Halligan and McGrath and Harty and these guys just... Can they just make their minds up? You know, I'm with it. I'm again it. No, I'm for it. Sorry, I'll consult the Attorney General and he'll tell me what I'm supposed to do. Now, those of you who voted for this... That's what you voted for. 
You voted for an unstable government. This is nothing about Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil. This is what you voted for. You voted for a bunch of people who appear to have no understanding whatsoever about responsibility of government, who are just simply motivated by their own idle stuff. I, I just, it's, it's just appalling. I, I'm, I, I, words fail me really. How, how Halligan, how Minister Halligan, even for a second, forget he's changed his mind. Simon Coveney, the minister, had to meet him today, and Coveney had to go into him and say, "Listen, uh, uh, or ring him up, uh, John. Uh, can I explain to you really what it means to be a minister in government? Can I explain to you about responsibility? You know, he had he had to have it explained to him. He didn't understand it." Finney McGrath had to go to the Attorney General and say, please explain to me, Attorney General, what it means to be in Cabinet and what is Cabinet's responsibility in relation to paying my water charges. Uh, Michael Harty uh, suddenly, you know, doctors in rural uh, Ireland don't seem to matter anymore. So is this what it is ahead of us now? Every single week are we going to have this kind of horse manure with these people who have absolutely no sense of responsibility, in fact dare I say it, no sense of patriotism, know what to do. Well, I uh, I asked you all to help me out here on the issue whether I should pay um, uh, my water charges. The first one says you should have done what you do. You should do what you've done at the beginning and join the boycott instead of being a pathetic sheep. I am not a pathetic sheep. What I am, I believe, and why I paid it is I'm a responsible, law-abiding citizen. Postpone payment pending clarification on refunds. Pay the man. Uh, I'm still paying George because it's the right thing to do. I think I'm with that tweet, or I must say, ask the Attorney General. Connerini says, uh, wipe your backside with it and send it back, says James. That's just stupid, James. And I, I know, I know you're not serious. I did use the word bucks, uh, so James says I should pay it in euro. Uh, Michael Fallon says, stay true to your blue shirt roots and just do what you're told, says Michael Fallon. Yeah, I think that's a good one. I should stay true to my blue shirt roots and pay. You're right. And I'm not going to apologize for having blue shirt roots either, for you. I'm not going to apologise for my mother, Michael Fallon, because of you, you know. <laughs> I'm not going to apologise for Michael Collins for you uh, or Liam Cosgrave or anybody else. And you, and you carry on and be who you are. You should be a man of principle and pay, says Michael, as you've held your position through all this. However, you should respect those who have not paid. All right, I'm going to pay. Uh, Another listener says, George, like yourself, I felt that way and many others that the water charge should be paid. I didn't think it was fairly done. I have uh, now decided to say no, simply because it's disgusting the way nothing will be done about reimbursement. Yeah, I understand that. 
Uh, fewer and fewer of us, George, are not paying bills. Sorry, but I got, I've, uh, if I get a full-time job, I'd be overcharged paying bills and other people's debts. I like my lazy lifestyle. <sighs> this is our problem, I have to say. You you don't have to work anymore in this country because you don't have to pay and you don't have to have any responsibility. Previous generations, I have to say, I think we've let them down. The generations who paid for this country, the generations who went to Britain and America, particularly the generations who went to Britain who stayed in bed and breakfasts, uh, many who resorted to alcohol in their old age, uh, many who succumbed to total loneliness, I think we owe them something to make this a country that uh, we want. And more and more people uh, are paying and uh, the uh, I'm going to pay. Stop giving out, says Bob, uh, about independence. It's a result of party politicians breaking their promises. The law to pay for water, for, uh, water was recent and can be changed. And uh, thank you for that. Um, Alan Kelly has spoken publicly uh, since he became the leader part of failed to become leader of the Labour Party, and I can't open a newspaper now for about three days without Alan Kelly staring at me from the front page. Why are we giving uh, this guy uh, space on newspapers and airtime? This is a party, the Labour Party, that has seven people elected by the country. Uh, and this is a guy whose career to date uh, has uh, given little reason to anybody who believe he might be a leader of anything. But he's not. He couldn't get a second. Or Why are we all uh, reading newspapers about a guy who couldn't get second or for leadership? What it just proves... What what it just goes to prove is that he thought he should be the leader, but nobody else did. So suck it up. Tough luck. Nobody wants you. And that's the way it is. Now, all the interviews in the world in newspapers aren't going to help you change that solid fact that the people in your party don't want Alan Kelly. Um Gillian Anderson, now she's in the X-Files, and uh, she has tweeted a mock poster of her in the 007 pose. No, no, no. Ian Fleming's um, character was called James Bond. Uh, he was a man with jet black hair who enjoyed driving classic motorcars. It cannot be played by a woman. Just the same as Tarzan cannot be played by a woman. But, of course, what we could do, of course, have two females in the Garden of Eden, and female two would come out of female one's rib. Like, you cannot change those kind of facts. No matter how much you go around it, it's just nonsense. And, you know, are you going to have Mr. Moneypenny? We've already got Ms. M. So, I mean, it just defeats the thing. It's a book. It's it's a film. It's iconic. Create your own female spies. And then you can be happy and get who you like to play it. But as far as I'm concerned, it's, uh, it's a man. Jerry paid his bill today. Well done so. Uh, 
the uh, George please paid to cover the entitled brigade. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I love this. Michael Collins was not a blue shirt, you goose-stepping moron. I just, I just love the text that come in here. This goose-stepping moron, Michael Collins was uh, the man who was at the root of the treaty. He was the man who fought to put it in place. And he was uh, shot in action uh, defending it. Had there been, had he been around, because he was uh, a minister in that first Commonwealth government, which ultimately became Fine Gael, he would have been Fine Gael. Uh, Liam says his bill uh, for water is going in the drawer. George Polencourt says you're anti-democratic and your opinions are increasingly manic and sensationalist. I'm sick of your conservative and at times bigoted views. You do not represent the Irish people, so don't ever dare to claim you speak for right-thinking people. You, sir, are a disgrace. Well, uh, Paul... uh, I'm sorry that conservative views actually rankle with you, uh, but increasingly, uh, being a conservative is viewed as being a dinosaur. And I'm happy uh, to stand by my views, and uh, I I don't claim to speak for right-thinking people. I claim to speak for the people who think like me, uh, whether right-thinking or otherwise is irrelevant. Uh, the Adam and Eve story is not a fact, George, says Dermot in Wexford. doesn't matter. James Bond isn't a fact either. But they want to play James Bond as a woman. So it's the same thing, Dermot in Wexford, old chap. Uh, the uh, You're making an absolutely moronic statement about 007. James Bond is merely a covert alias for all spies who occupied the 007 reference number. Are you suggesting the 007 reference number is a fact? Uh, 007 is a spy, not one individual. Um, uh, uh, Adam and Eve was a fact so what higher authority do you need right if Tarzan becomes a woman does Jane become James I'm losing patience with this PC brigade of modern times says Benjamin um, you are right uh, of course uh, as somebody says we also could have Olive Twist and Jane Bond it's uh, uh, just nonsense and uh, the uh, Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. Did we come from them? Your Garden of Eden point in in uh, what in reference to bond makes as much sense as paying water charges. Look, the point uh, about this whole James Bond thing is it's fiction, and Adam and Eve are fiction. I've no difficulty with that. I'm not a creationist in that sense, as the listener rightly says. How could we have descended from two men? So all those are stories attempting to tell previous generations when there weren't mobile phones, televisions, and everything else in a different way. It doesn't change the intrinsic issue uh, of faith and belief. Uh, isn't the James Bond in the books a chain-smoking, alcoholic, overweight Englishman? Haven't they already drifted far from that characterization by casting 
slim, healthy-loving Scottish and Irish actors. Well, yes, he was chain-smoking. It was never suggested he was an alcoholic um, and never, ever suggested that he was overweight, ever, uh, because, in fact, he had to be incredibly fit and go through fitness tests. I've read all these books a million times. Uh, somebody says, please that tell that liberal texter that he doesn't speak for the people either. Typical liberal thinks they speak for everyone. Fellow conservatives, uh, or another conservative in Cork, thanks uh, for that. Now, uh, Norbert Hoffer was the far-right candidate in Austria's presidential election, and he's conceded defeat this afternoon with reports suggesting he had lost the election by just uh, 3,000 votes. New, the new president of Austria will be Alexander van der Bellen of the Greens after the closest result in Austrian history. Well, of course, Hoffer's party is the Freedom Party, very much a, f- a far-right party, very much against the whole immigration uh, issue. And if you were in Austria, uh, which is at the very edge of the whole migrant issue, because people are using Austria as a conduit in Germany, um, it's understandable to see how the far right have become. You're looking at the far right in Denmark. You're looking at the far right in Portugal. In fact, the astonishing thing, I think, about Ireland, and we are in a place politically where we've never been in our entire history, I don't know what it says about us in a way that we don't have a far-right party. Um, and that uh, is going to be interesting to see in the next 10 years. And uh, the International Olympic Committee is going to give condoms to athletes. Uh, officials told the Brazilian newspaper they plan to distribute 450,000 condoms for Olympic athletes and staff to use. Uh, well, the issue about that, of course, is Zika, uh, the terrifying prospect for women who are pregnant or might become pregnant, that they would give birth to uh, a child with incurable disability is terrifying. Whether you're giving 42 condoms per athlete for the Olympic Games is uh, significant or not, I, I don't know. Uh, but there was a great uh, English um, Javelin thrower, Colin Smith, I think his name was, um, he knew he wasn't going to win a gold medal, so he thought he would win a different kind of gold medal by betting as many European, uh, Eastern European uh, female athletes as he possibly could. Um, the issue is, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I welcome, obviously, the issue of condoms in the same way I welcome the issue of condoms uh, in relationships uh, they did um, for AIDS. So you've got to applaud it, I think. Well, um, we're going to be, of course, talking after five o'clock about the program for government and and whether it is actually affordable or not. Uh, and Lars says we are defined by our minds, not our bodies, not sure what dad is. This is about a female bond, presumably. If they want a female bond, why can't she be his illegitimate daughter or his long-lost sister, says Deco on the bus. And Daniel in Cork is looking forward to a woman playing the role of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, George, I'm getting worried about you.
First you packed in the bounty bars, now you're getting tea. What happened to the coffee? Next you'll be pulling down your Pamela Anderson poster, says Mike in Galway. Um, the bounty bars, yeah, uh, that's made a huge difference. I've lost uh, over £20, thanks to no bounty bars. The tea is because I don't like the coffee here, so uh, I make my own coffee in the morning and in the evening. And the Pamela Anderson poster, never, never. Uh, I I keep that up, and she's my screensaver on my laptop. She's uh, everywhere. And, George, I'm with you on this one about keeping Bond as a male. I suppose they would need to change the name to Jamie Bond, having a female. I wouldn't like a woman called Jamie, I must say. Does anybody know a woman called Jamie? No, I think Jane. Oh, yeah, Tony Curtis had a daughter, Jamie Lee Curtis. She was great in that movie. Do you remember Changing Places? I really liked uh, that. I have an email from Paul which says, Will Austria apologize for World War Two? One out of three SS members were Austrians. Polish people were never told sorry by the country of your wife. Well, I don't know what my wife has to do with that at the moment, seeing she was a babe in arms. Uh, but uh, presumably this is just a pot shot. Uh, but absolutely, um, the, Austria was a, an absolute accepting member of Anschluss and its relationship with Germany, uh, and they were very committed to it. There is no question about that. Um, and religion to texter that said Adam and Eve begot only two sons. That is correct. Adam begot sons and daughters. Oh, very good. That is incorrect, the listener says. Genesis 5, uh, verses 3 and 4. That's really good. Thanks for telling me. Well, I must say, Anna, who I met in court, gave me a catechism uh, when I was down there on Thursday. Not sure if it includes that, but I might have a check. And by the way, Anna, if you're listening, thank you so much for dropping it in. Uh, uh, Cabbage and Gorma says, I love hearing people render judgment on a book they clearly haven't read. I understand people saying the Garden of Eden story is fictional, but the Bible doesn't say that Adam and Eve had only two sons. All right, Cabbage, well done. Genesis 5-4 again says he begot uh, sons and daughters. Well done. How do we ever get down to the Cain and Abel thing? Don't tell me it was because of Geoffrey Archer. I mean, that would be just too much to believe. Uh, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis in Trading Places, Chris says. What's wrong? Was she not okay in Trading Places? I thought she was great. Was the movie not called Trading Places? The black guy was in it. Eddie, what's his name? Eddie Murphy. And the other guy. And the white guy, Dan Aykroyd. It was a story about a white and a black guy. That was the whole point of the story. Wasn't it? I don't know, maybe I'm not a film critic anymore. Morty, Morty. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie I'm joined now by Michael Tanousis, the managing director of Aqua Amore, to talk us through the rise of water-only cocktail bars and menus. Michael, you can't be serious. Water is a is a unique is a unique product, and uh, each uh, each product tells its own story. 
All right. Now, I remember um, when we all used to drink tap water, and then the guy who invented uh, Ballygowan uh, and presumably made a fortune, he was on the Late Late Show, and when asked why did he bottle water, he said, because people are making a statement. Is that what people are doing now, making a statement by by having water-only cocktails? That's an interesting question. Um, I would say let's wind it back and reference your country relatives who'd visit you in the city and comment on how different the water was where they were and how, how nasty the water was in the city because it had been tampered with so much. And I should say that that's probably a good reference point to bear in mind when actually taking a view on the difference between waters and people's awareness of the difference between waters. All right. Now, what I can't do, but which lots of people can, is you can put three glasses of wine in front of them and they can sort of say, yes, that's a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, that's an Australian one, that's a French one or whatever. Now, can water experts do that with water? I mean, can you? I know I can tell the difference between sparkling and still, but there my knowledge ends. Absolutely. Um, with the Sauvignon, you know, the... Uh the New Zealand ones will be characterized by certain notes that people who've educated their palates will be aware of. It's just familiarization and education, as with anything. But with waters, it's um, the misleading thing and the misnomer is that people talk with a language uh, of taste. Taste is misleading when it comes to waters, still waters, that is. In fact, the differences are texture. So um, people will feel, a water will feel... Um, weighty or more viscous, or it can feel refreshing and crisp and light. Um, but simply because there aren't the uh, semantics or phraseology to encapsulate the experiences that people feel with the texture on their palates, it uh, leads to quite confusing and sometimes doubtful conversations. But there are differences between them for very All right. But, but the Irish were very late converts um, to bottled water. And the first time we used to see bottled water was when we went on holiday. And when you went for the first time on the continent to your holiday, which many of my generation, it was a big deal. And you went to Spain or somewhere. There was a bottle of water put on the table. And the assumption was that was because the water from the tap might actually kill you. Um, and, and that. But then the French particularly, I mean, it's a name that doesn't resonate very well now because of its World War II history, but like Vichy, Vichy produced its own spas and its own waters and, and so on. And the French were drinking water from a bottle long, long, long before we ever did. So their palates are more educated than ours then, really, aren't they? Maybe they were more willing to accept the notion um, of water's wellness and uh, with in particular the um, the example of Vichy um, was world renowned as uh, people used to take to the waters as um, as a, as a treatment yes. for wellness so so it's, it's this continental association with the minerals in the water associated with the wellness um, of, of an individual and that's you know with today's culture of provenance and organics and aware of you know from from farm to plate you know, all this awareness of the food chain, um, it's, it's something that's coming more and more to the fore. And that also is directly related to the taste or texture of a water because a water is uh, a liquid that is uh, possessed by minerals. And every water has a different set of minerals 
and the minerals all have different properties which affect the taste and or texture. Therefore, by the very definition of what a water is, it's just a, water is a universal solvent, so it just transports minerals in varying quantities. That's the reason that this liquid varies in its taste or texture. Um, it's just it's, it's pure science. The interesting thing here, I think, um, Michael, is that when I ask for water, my only choice is still or sparkling, by and large. So I go to restaurant A on Monday, and I get uh, I get my water in a bottle with a particular brand. The following day, I get it from a different restaurant in a different brand. There is an assumption that each one of those bottles of water is the same, whereas in reality they are not. By and large, the water that you'll get in restaurants are most often selected according to price points and or uh, origin. You know, maybe, maybe the owner of the restaurant is familiar with the brand or maybe they just want a cheap water or the majority of waters that aren't, aren't particularly differentiated or notable for their gastronomic relevance. Um, and there are fine waters that are absolutely differentiated. The most obvious example I can give you, there are a number of sparkling waters. Vichy is a good one. that actually emerge from the ground already carbonated. And you can't really get a more amazing example of how incredible nature is than the thought that you can actually get a water from the ground that's already carbonated. And the difference between these waters that, um, that you can find is that they vary in their carbonation levels and their mineral levels. And with Vichy, some of our customers will consume it because it helps with their gout. So they have very much um, medical reasons for consuming it. Oh, can I stop you? Can I stop you? Yeah. Um, <laughs> as soon as you mentioned the word gout, gout sufferers like me and probably a substantial proportion of the audience is going to prick its ears up. So, so therefore, v- water from Vichy will be seen as helpful in it relation to gout. It alleviates symptoms of gout. And the, our customers who order it, order it in by bucket loads. I mean, they, 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 they absolutely swear by it, and they have done for many years. Okay, now, my guest is Michael Tanousis. He's the managing director of Aqua Amore. So, therefore, what you're doing, Michael, as I see it, is you're not just supplying a water. You may be, you may be supplying um, waters from different countries, or different parts of different countries. So different, well, we well know that uh, if you forget about water, that clearly the mineral content of ground in France is very different from uh, what's in the ground in the Belgian Congo of old or whatever. I mean, that's an extreme example, but we know that the water coming from the ground will have uh, characteristics of the ground it comes from. Yes, or otherwise, for example... There was one water that we provided a lot of news recently because we provided it as a, as a headline product for the Merchant Hotel. They requested it in Belfast. And this one was um, iceberg water. And um, this selling for uh, quite, quite a bit of money. I think they were asking 30 or so pounds for it or euros. Um, a bottle. But, um, but, 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 yeah, per bottle. And <laughs> this is more than my beloved Sauvignon Blanc from Marlborough. Absolutely. You know, and, and with this one, it's a question of logistics, obviously, because they're, they're harvesting icebergs in small quantities yeah. and then bottling it, and it's a beautiful bottle, and it's more of an artisan product. But the point is, with miner- minerals, the water in the iceberg is pre, uh, pre-industrialization. And so 
it's got very, very few minerals in it. It's less than nine parts per million, where something like Evian, for example, would be 300-something. So that's, that's a, a really good example of how the absence of contact with land can also, uh, is also reflected directly in the properties of the water, which underlines your observation perfectly. You may be at uh, sort of the cutting edge of a time when we're all going to be looking at water in a, in a much more intelligent and interesting way. I've come, I've come over time to realize that when I come home, for example, and I fancy a nice cold beer, sometimes a naturally carbonated water that has a really good carbonation will hit the spot in exactly the same way that a beer would. And I've come to realize that it's actually the sensation of a cool carbonated liquid that actually does that job of refreshment over an alcohol with its associated calories and um, inebriation. Well, what we're definitely going to see is we're going to see much more discerning consumers of water, I suspect, starting with me. What do I have to buy for my gout again by the caseload? Fishy cellar stand. (laughs) <laughs> there'll, be an, there'll be an order in the post, Michael. Uh, Michael Tanousis, the Managing Director of Aqua um, Amore. And you could look up the website and get all the information you need about the product. Well, that's it for today on The Right Hook. We do have the Digest, of course, available now online. That's a truncated version of the show. 60 minutes, but you won't miss a single interview. It's available now on newstalk.com forward slash the right hook. The production team today was Alex Russo, Robin Gleason, and Stephen McDermott. Sound engineers Michael Quilligan and Paul Murnock. But your producer was Mark Simpson. And for me, George Hook, it's good night and goodbye. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie All right. um, Earlier today, Journal.ie reported that Tusla, the Child Protection Agency, removed a child from the care of its grandparents because they were deemed to be too old. I'm joined now uh, to is the author and child protection expert Shane Dunphy. Uh, Shane, welcome to the program. Thanks, George. How are you? There was no suggestion whatsoever that the grandparents were unfit. This decision was made to put the child, take it from the family, put it in a home because the grandparents and in their 60s were deemed by two sled to be too old. Yeah, uh, looking at the case, that does appear to be what has happened here. It seems like somebody sitting in an office somewhere um, just decided to follow the guidelines that are laid down um, to the letter. And um, I would really question whether that was the right thing to do under the circumstances, I mean, obviously, I only know what I've read in the article, and I'm not aware of any of the kind of intricate ins and outs of the particular case, but it looks very much like this was simply somebody following the book. There are guidelines laid down about what the um, sort of ideal profile for foster carers is. But in my experience of working in cases like this, Um, Where a member of the family steps forward and says that they would like to take on the responsibility of of looking after the children, um, usually in circumstances where parents through illness or incarceration um, or death 
are unable to look after the kids. Normally, the HSD would feel that it is desirable and preferable that a child would stay within their their family, whereby they have all of the heritage and culture and, and, and the fact that they are with their family that this is usually considered okay. better for them. So I'm a bit agog as, as to how this could have happened. All right, I, I have to say, it is your nature and your to be congratulated on being quite reasonable in this matter. However, I'm not quite reasonable in this matter. I, I think that person should be sacked. Um, how anybody... Well, no, Shane, listen to me. Shane, how can any bureaucrat, obviously this bureaucrat has no children, obviously this bureaucrat is unmarried, uh, obviously this bureaucrat shouldn't be in the job he or she is in, because how can the bureaucrat seriously suggest that it is better for a child to be in a home, which is where the child is going, rather than in uh, uh, the loving care, which is not in question, according to Tusla. And uh, we recognize the importance of the relationship for both you, the grandparents, and the child. Now, Tusla recognizes all that sort of good stuff, but they say, well, actually, you know, there's a a paragraph somewhere which says that the, the arithmetic relationship between the child and the grandparents should be pi r squared or something, so therefore we're going to do yeah. the arithmetic. Look, George, you're absolutely right. I mean, look, the reason I got involved in working with kids in the first place is to try and make their lives better and improve their situation. My experience of working in child protection cases is that having the child within a family, ideally their own family, is always the best situation. And I'm also a believer that each case should be taken on its own merits and that basic common sense should also be brought to play. I'm a grandparent. If anything were to happen to, you know, to, to my son um, or, or the child's mother, I would hope that we would be in a situation to be able to step in and help out. And I would be appalled at the notion that some administrator or desk jockey would step in and say, do you know what, you're not fit to look after this child, we're going to stick them in a residential home. I've worked in residential institutions and I loved it when I worked there. I, I really enjoyed it. However, I would agree that uh, foster placement or being with a member of the child's extended family is always going to be better than being in a residential home because of the fact that residential situations are, are, are artificial. You've got often large numbers of staff coming and going. Children become institutionalized. It, it's not a better option. Uh, the Citizens Information Board on, on Tuesday specifically states there are no maximum age limits for foster carers. In making a decision about suitability, every effort is made to ensure that those selected are suitable. What more suitable? When, in Tusla's own letter to the grandparents, they say, there is no question of your love for this child. There is no question that you want the best for this child. There is no question that your continuing involvement with the child should continue. But we're taking the child away. 
Now, you not me use the word dis, uh, desk jockey, but yeah. desk jockey it is in this case. And uh, there should be, like, as always happens in these cases, it's some an anonymous person does these acts who will never be judged, who will will never be asked a question on this. Uh, we have a minister for children. Uh, the minister for children should be on the case. I agree with you. At the, at the end of the day, there is one thing that is always crucially important and should be to the fore in these instances, and that is the welfare of the child or children in question. And yet again, for bureaucratic administrative reasons, that appears to have been tossed aside. I mean, look, George, you, you said I always try and be reasonable, and I do. But look, I get pissed off about this kind of thing as well. I get angry. And, and, and sometimes I just feel that we get so bogged down in this country and within our, our public sector by administration for the, you know, administration becoming almost its own end and dotting the I's and crossing the T's and forgetting about the fact that these are real people and real human lives that are, are in play. And it's not just moving pieces around a feckin' chessboard, you know, to kind of try and put this here and move this resource over here. We, we should really be sitting down and looking at the essence of what the impact of these things is going but to be. But how, how, like, I, I um, spent a lot of time in Romania working on those tragic children who were put sure. into homes in, in the Ceausescu regime. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that is the position in Ireland, but nevertheless, Less, we have seen that if you have a society where extended family is not involved, then you 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 have a major error. And uh, if we don't they, like what what Tusla should be doing here is encouraging, in fact, the involvement of grandparents. Like it seems to me, Tusla aren't saying uh, you know because grandparents are routinely um, and you're talking to one routinely involved in sort of the the, the babysitting and the picking yeah. up from school and sure, all I'm that. Said, I'm a grand I'm a granddad yeah. myself, George, and we, we 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 try and help out with that as much as we possibly can and enjoy doing so. Correct. Uh, we're going to call the Minister for Children because I think uh, the Minister ought to get uh, her backside in gear here and challenge well, this, is, this is a classic example of where you know we should be bringing whatever we can to bear in this to find out what exactly happened because I mean I know when I when I worked in, in full time in, in child protection there were several foster parents that we utilised that were retired people and they were some of the best so I, I, I wonder exactly what is going on here and why this should be easily able to be fixed and rectified, uh, and, and it needs to be. All right. Thank you so much. That was Shane Dunphy, child protection uh, expert. We're going to chase the minister. Uh, can we get on to that, guys? We're going to chase the minister now. And I, so six times I'm going to say, uh, let's chase the minister so that everybody knows here, there and everywhere else uh, that it is the minister's responsibility to do something about this. I'll be talking to Chris Luke about the A&E crisis in just a moment. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie 
50,000 people a year now are walking out of A&E departments due to overcrowding. Not walking out cured, but walking out without any treatment. They're just fed up. I'm joined by uh, A&E consultant at University College Hospital in Cork, Chris Luke. Uh, Chris Luke, welcome to the programme. Thanks, George. Are they walking out? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm reliably informed that there's 50,000 walking out of our emergency departments every year in the Republic um, by the Independent today. It's not a figure that particularly surprises me because, of course, we have something of the order of 1.2 million people coming to our 30-odd uh, emergency departments. So that, that's the percentage we're dealing with. It's a, it's a smallish percentage. Now, obviously, it can be a source of, of, of regret, uh, particularly if people come to grief. But, uh, you know, not a lot of these people do come to grief. Or, or I think we would have heard about it already. But um, you can understand it, though, can't you? People spending, you know, up to 12... I don't know how you spend 12 hours sitting on Chernany, I must confess. <clears throat> um, I, I, I just find that hard to believe. And my experience of A&E over the last number of years is pretty limited since I stopped playing rugby. Uh, but, but I have had family members. You just sit there and sit there and sit there. Um, and it's understandable there for the people might say, well, this isn't fatal. Uh, I'm actually going to go. Well, I mean, I, I've, I've set out remedies for this over the last 10, 15 years. I mean, I wrote a like piece. Like what? Well, I wrote a piece in the, in the Irish Times there last year, setting out a number of remedies. One of them, of course, was, was a sort of Francis Brennan equivalent in every emergency department, someone who was there purely to, to look after people's comfort. Uh, I mean, things as simple as a, a glass of water, a, a chair for everybody involved, and, uh, and a little bit of privacy, somewhere to charge their phones, and perhaps something to read. I mean, I've got uh, there's somebody I've seen today re- reading, which seems to have made its way halfway through war, in peace uh, as he waits for, for a bed but you know uh, you know there are lots of things we can do um, but uh, you know I, I'm, I'm not sure how much people listen to uh, you know, okay. people like me well now 50,000 is a raw figure so therefore 50,000 seems very big but you've got to relate it to how many people come through the doors of our A&E's and have you any idea how many people that might be well, I mean, we in Cork would see something of the order of 120, 130,000 people per year between the two major emergency departments at CUH and the Mercy. And, of course, obviously we have a superb satellite unit, which is a minor injury unit up in Grona Broher, which provides a wonderful fast service. But in the main departments, I mean, we'd probably have 100 or two every month out of that who take their own discharge. And I gather that the matter might see as many as 300 other departments, like Limerick reported, have seen 300 people. OK, leave. so you are talking about in excess of a million people going into A and E. Yes, I mean, you know, I mean, two hundred. I mean, we we have uh, three hundred and fifty patients a day, perhaps coming to us every day in Cork in the EDs. And so we're talking about, say, 10 a day, as far as I can see from Limerick, which seems to be the worst offender in the, in, the, in, the, in the figures I've seen today. So you might get between 5 and 10 of that 350-odd taking their own discharge. That, that would be a, a kind of bullpark All right, figure. but a good question, a question by a listener, of course. It does beg the question, um, if you walk out, should you have been there in the first place? 
Well, you know, George, I've been saying this for many, many years. I mean, when I went into the emergency, uh, the, field, the, the, the discipline of emergency medicine 33 years ago from uh, as an intern in, in, in St. Vincent's and then into St. James's in Rialto in 1983, you know, we, we conceived of the emergency departments as somewhere you went if you'd had an unexpected mishap. Or a sudden medical crisis. Now, in 2016, we have to accommodate vast amounts of other patients, people from nursing homes who've been there for months and who deteriorate, perhaps sadly are, are shipped out to the ED when they're on, on the day they're dying. We've people sent to us because there there just simply aren't the the, the scanning or outpatient uh, capacity that there should be for for long-term illnesses. With people walking in off the street with, with moles they want to have uh, removed, they just suddenly decided they want the the mole or the tattoo removed. So we have to accommodate all sorts of... But of, also, um, socially, things have changed. So, I mean, when you went in in 83, you mightn't have had too many drunks coming through the door, for argument's sake. Well, we had a fair amount of drunks. I mean, but even the pattern of drinking back then, I mean, people would come in after the pub. I mean, people would come in drunk. Uh, I, I mean, I worked in Lockenstown for a year, for example, in South County Dublin, which is, you know, known as Bray General, or Wicklow General, as it, it was affectionately known. And, you know, people would come in after the pub at half uh, 11, 12. They might be quite intoxicated. They'd have a mishap, a fall, a fight, whatever. They'd be asleep by 2 o'clock, and they'd shuffle off, you know, apologetically at 7 or 8 in the morning. And that would be the, the end of, of intoxication until the, the next night. Now, sadly, you have people drinking on the street all day. You have people taking all sorts of drugs. The homeless, for example, I mean, part of the homelessness problem is the, is the, is the plethora uh, of drugs of all sorts, legal, illegal, uh, head shop drugs, cocaine, you know, you know, synthetic spice, all sorts of things. So intoxication and uh, the, the behavior attached to it are, is, is a much bigger problem. It's more complex. You've also got the issue of grandparents, for example. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a great fan of grandparenting. I mean, and, you know, I frequently talked about the, the, the the influence and the importance of, of, of grandparents in managing, uh, for example, uh, toddlers with children. I mean, in, in the early 80s, uh, grandparents were often very closely involved in parenting and knew exactly what to do with that particular rash. And they knew the difference between a child who, who would be get over an illness by the following day and, and something that was perhaps brewing in terms of measles or, or mumps, for, for instance. So, yeah, the, the social change is absolutely at the heart uh, of our problem, together with uh, healthy Economics, false health economics, where you know where the health economists of the 80s predicted that we would need very few, uh, far fewer beds now because we'd be so efficient and everything would be done as an outpatient. Uh, but but the economists have whether have had the health form or or the pure financial form of a lot to answer for. I mean, uh, Jack Lynch's government did an economist like who told them you didn't have to have rates and you didn't have to have tax on cars and you didn't have all sorts of things. The economists do do have a certain kind of cachet that they they are even more. Uh, uh, you know, uh, certain than doctors in their yeah. diagnosis. <laughs> You're absolutely right, George, because, you know, I worked in the NHS for about 14 years and, you know, Margaret Thatcher famously was told to avoid any dealings with doctors because they were, they were, they were the devil and all. And, of course, uh, in the 80s, uh, the health economists were brought in to basically to re- reinforce political theory. Uh, and it was the, it was the prescriptions of, of, of health economists in the 80s which led to the slash and burn and the, and the elimination of so much of our bed stock uh, on the basis, as I say, uh, of economic predictions, which all turned out to be, or most of them turned out to be entirely specious and false. But of course, the bed stock is now gone and we're left with the, 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 the massively increased burden. 
All right, thank you so much. That's Chris Luke, A&E consultant at University College Hospital. Of course, it is Dr. Chris Luke.